Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast number eight. There were 18 of us. We were in the Harvard College class of 1963. We are now pushing 80. In this episode, we talk with four women in the Harvard Radcliffe class of 1963. We are joined by John Woodford's wife, Liza, Marcy Benstock, Cindy Wardle, and Connie McDougall, the only black woman in the class of 1963. And also with me are the usual cast of characters, Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, and George Jones. Fred, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good for an old codger. I am calling in from Pryor Lake, Minnesota, which is, I think, a third ring suburb south and a bit west of downtown Minneapolis. Connie, where are you from? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Columbiaville, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley. Uh, Marcy, where are you calling from? How are you? I'm calling from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I don't have COVID-19 yet, so I'm great. (laughs) Um, but I'm not retired, so I'm working from home and not great. Great. Jerry, how about you? Well, I am retired, I, but only for a year and a half, so I worked till I was 77, so I should have Oof. taken advice from other folks, is what it amounts to. So I'm in Pasadena, California, uh, right outside of Los Angeles, looking forward to our 111 degree heat today. Wow. Wow. Nice. John, what's your story? How are you today? Well, great. I retired, I can't remember what year, 2000, what, Eliza, three or four or two or one. Anyway, and I became <laughs> an, immediately an expert in leisureating. Leisureating, <laughs> ah, nice word. I'm a leisureator. Par um, excellence. <laughs> yeah. And, um, Despite my best efforts. <laughs> <laughs> and Cindy, how about you? Where are you calling from? I call, I'm calling from where I live in um, in Tuscany, in the county uh, region, wine uh-huh. growing region. George, how about you? Where, where are you today? How are you doing? I'm still in Atlanta and doing well, trying to stay cool. It's not 111, but it's still hot in, in hot Atlanta. And I don't have COVID yet either, but I got on a plane on Thursday, so I'm keeping <laughs> my fingers crossed that I won't. Ooh. Glassa, how about you? What's your, where are you calling from? Well, I'm oddly enough calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan, <laughs> which will soon be in the news because all the students came back to town. And so I'm watching with interest as the COVID cases spike. Right. placing yeah. bets on how soon before Thanksgiving all the students will be sent home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your experience at Harvard when you look back at it now. Cindy, you start. I would say something that I... Um, I, in either an article that you wrote, Kent, or else your book, you said you talked, you spoke about somebody who said that they felt that they were at Harvard, but they didn't feel like they were of Harvard. And I think that was true of me too. I didn't really feel a part of it. And I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really feel like I truly belonged there in a way that a lot of the people did. I, for example, my sister, who was two years older than me, is more of a real Harvard person. She still is involved. She goes to all the reunions. She's well. She's a super preppy, you know. She's right she into that life. Preppy. Yeah, she was very yeah. into that life. 
and her, um, even though we went to the same schools and everything, but she's, um, she's organ involved in organizing the reunions and things. She's just more of a, a Harvard type than, uh, I, I think it didn't leave too much of a mark on me, really, to tell you the truth. I mean, did you want to, did you want to belong? I mean, did you fret about not belonging? Well, no, because I kind of just considered myself kind of a dork anyway, coming from a large Midwestern uh, high school. And, and I was kind of nervous because I thought everybody's going to be all preppies. But in the dormitory, I found friends, Connie, but also other friends who were also not, you know, nothing, not big preppies. And so I did have friends and I was that, you know, that was fine. And that was my sort of my orbit, which was kind of small. Right, right. How about you, Marcy? What do you think? Well, um, I was totally different. I was completely out of it. I was a dreamy English major sitting in the basement of Radcliffe Library, not aware of anything going on in the world. Um, and on one of our first days, the dean of what was then Radcliffe said to all of us, every one of you thinks you're a mistake, but believe me, none of you is a mistake. <laughs> but I knew that I was the mistake. <laughs> why, why did you think you were a mistake? Why did you think that? I, I, I thought I was stupid. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. That's interesting. Wow. Connie, how about you? How about me? Um, it's, it's just hard. It's hard to say. They, um, I guess... In some way, I felt I belonged, and in some way, not, um, which I guess is typical of humans. And um, what can I say? There, there was there's the life in the dorm, which is very different. I, I think I identified more with Radcliffe, not really with Harvard. It mm -hmm. was like a very different experience. It was a Radcliffe experience. Um, I you know, spent a, some time studying, not a whole lot. We played a lot of bridge and stuff like that. And um, I and I, I am also like Deckel. I don't like to relive the past. I am not a, a reunion goer, for example, mm -hmm. um, because I feel that if you really want to see the people, you can. And um, uh, most of them you don't want to see really very much. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so you should just kind of choose the ones that you want to see. Right, right, um, right. And, um, yeah, so I don't really have that kind of like a full background of memories. But, um, I, but I enjoyed my time. I had, you know, um, difficult patches like Chaucer. That was a difficult <laughs> patch. Um, oh, yeah. But I came to love him after, after all. Liza, tell me about you. What's your experience? What are you thinking now? Well, uh, I'll tell you, the first interesting thing about my going to Radcliffe was that I had never heard of it when I applied to it. Uh -huh. Really? Really. My Why did you apply? School, Sarah Benson, uh, and I went to a small country high school in Ohio. There were 77 kids in my graduating class. Um, 
Sarah Benson said, it's supposed to be hard to get into Radcliffe. Let's apply and see what happens. And who was Sarah Benson? My good friend in high school. Okay. So did you and both I, get in or what? <laughs> and so, and so I applied to Miami University of Ohio, to Cornell, which was where I thought I wanted to go, probably because I was born in Ithaca. I liked their song and they had a lake. So I wanted to go there. And I applied to Radcliffe because we were just going to do it. So I was accepted at Cornell. I was all set to go there. I thought I came home from school one day and my mother excitedly waved a letter at me and she said, you're going to Radcliffe. <laughs> and I said, I am. I don't want to go to Radcliffe. I want to go to Ithaca. No, no, no. So they kind of forced me to go to Radcliffe. I just didn't worry about it too much, although I did get the rug pulled out from under me in, in, in the first class of HUM 6, in which um, we were given a poem by Wordsworth. It had about three or four stanzas, and it was called To a Butterfly. And the assignment was to write three pages about it. And I couldn't imagine. How could you, could you possibly? How could you? I, I had the same experience in an art history course when we went to the Museum of Fine Arts and we were looking at um, Roman busts. And we were assigned to write a paper about a Roman bust of, I don't know, Augustus or somebody. And I'm thinking, what can you say? It's, it's a head of a man. I mean, what else could you possibly say? Right, so I was right, right. naive, you know. Right. But you thought of you thought of three pages, right? Right. And <laughs> no, I, I can't even remember. I was. I, so what, I, what kind I, of grade did you get? How can they possibly? How could anyone have anything to say <laughs> about this? And uh, but you know, you catch on if you're. Yeah, I think we were all smart enough that even if we didn't go to the fancy schools that prepared you to speak, um, you know, cleverly and knowledgeably and use. I learned also something else I think that was quite important. To a certain extent, I would say maybe 60% is just learning the vocabulary. The that, vocabulary that, meaning what? That, the vocabulary that's, of... that's accepted by the people. Ah. Because I know in HUM 6, at one point I talked about, this gives you the feeling of, and Paul DeMond, who was my section man, wrote in the margin. Don't say that. Vague, vague, <laughs> vague next to it. So I oh, remember I thinking, what are you supposed to say? So I went to the class and the next time I went, I listened to what he said when I would have said feeling. And he said, expressive impact. <laughs> ah, so nice the word. next time nice I word. wanted to say feeling in a paper, I said, <laughs> expressive impact and there were three uh, exclamation points moving <laughs> ones in the margin. Wow, wonderful. Wow. Oh, a lot of it was just kind of getting acculturated. Yeah, yeah. And I yes. think we all probably had little 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 blips of that. Yeah. Well, you know, we uh, in doing the book, Gene and I interviewed a lot of uh, guys, people from Harvard and uh, and we've had people on the guys on the on the podcast from Harvard, and the general perception is that the folks at Radcliffe were smarter than we were. Right. How That's do you feel? probably think? true. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> well, probably, first of all, we were fewer. Yeah. Fewer. And, um, and girls had to overcome more to be smart girls. So I think girls just in general try to please more and at least I think I did. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, um, you know, you try to do the right thing. Right. So yeah, Jerry, what yeah. do, Jerry, what do you think? Well, I did date some Cliffies. There's no question about that, but there's also no question they were a lot smarter than we were. Marcy, I think you're crazy if you think you were stupid. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I found out later I wasn't <laughs> after I graduated. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you, the ladies always got the best grades. Uh, they graduated cum laude, magna cum laude, et cetera. We struggled. So uh, for me, I worked 20 hours a week cleaning toilets. And the other time I was just studying, making certain I didn't flunk out because my parents were very clear, you know, you either made it through Harvard or you were going to be a red cap at Union Station, period. That was, <laughs> <laughs> there was no in between is what it amounted to. So I was in awe of the Cliffies, I can tell you that. How about you, Fred? I thought the Cliffies, well, I didn't meet a lot of them to begin with, which was one of my questions. Why was it so hard to hit on a Cliffy? Um, it's... it's <laughs> It seems to me that um, there were like four or five hundred Cliffies and five thousand of us. About right. And so I, what I figured out, or at least decided, was that with those odds, the Cliffies could date three times a day without getting around to me. Um, <laughs> And none of them did, although I met mean, there, there was a woman named Susie Knickerbocker. Oh, I remember. Don't you remember that name, Cindy? Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember the name. And she had a little scooter, and she would um, sometimes ride me back to Adam's house. There was some class we took together. Um, and then there was the redhead um, McCormick was her last name. She used to use me to get away from guys. She would, come to, she would come to class and act like we were an item. And, ah, and that turned guys off to her. Yeah, she'd come and protection. sit next to me. Right. Um, but that was as close as I got. Well, John, I mean, you clearly have positive yeah. things to well, say about Radcliffe, right? They, they said, I went to some of the the Radcliffe girls had at the reunions where they said that they were not treated right by a lot of the faculty or their opinions weren't taken seriously or various other things. But I didn't notice that. I mean, they gave evidence that they found this to be the case. Some of them did. But on the other hand, I noticed that a lot of them who said that were PhDs and professors and I, you know, made me kind of wonder, oh, they must have done okay despite something or other. But that was their experience um, as far as whether they thought they were taken seriously intellectually. I don't know. Well, except I think it's kind of a commentary that the smartness seems to be such a factor. And you wonder why the girls are treated as being thought about as being so smart, whereas the boys were very smart too. So it's, but it's like it was an unusual characteristic 
or something that you notice and point out. And it seems to me that that, that alone sort of says something. Well, it might be what someone said before that since there were fewer of you, it was sort of the, every, every girl seemed very smart. And that didn't seem the way with the men. No. <laughs> well, I think there were a lot of I think there were a lot of not smart, not too smart men. <laughs> well, I have news for you. There were lots of not too smart women too. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but Radcliffe was like sort of like a finishing school to me. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, we had these funny rituals for dinner and for after dinner. Right. Wednesday, gracious um, living. Right. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's very different from being in a large co-ed university, which is where the, they are now. And our housing was certainly far inferior to what the boys had, mm -hmm. and our food as well. I mean, I remember being very annoyed that the, that the guys got ice cream every day, and we only got <laughs> ice cream twice a week. <laughs> well, how were, how, were the houses, how were the houses inferior? In what sense? Oh gosh, I was, we had these little tiny dorm rooms, oh. you know, just with the bathroom way down at the end of the hall. Well, but on the other hand, we had drying closets. What is a drying closet? <laughs> a drying closet? Okay, let's say that you washed a sweater and you wanted it to dry quickly. They had a heated little room where you could put it and it would dry quickly. Not oh, us. Not us. Okay. Oh, really? Well, in Cabot Hall, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this when you guys when everybody looks back i mean would you i assume you would do it again and we would go there again we had that we talked about that on an earlier podcast and some of us were feeling that we had missed the black experience and were would have intrigued been intrigued about going to one of the historically black colleges but how do you i mean would you all do it again pretty much or go to a smaller school maybe i think jerry you were saying you might go to might have gone to a smarter, smaller school or? Well, I, I came from, I was fortunate enough to go to a boarding school, Phillips Andover, and the classes were small. You got to know the teachers. They got to know you. You had conversations with them. You had a rapport. That never happened at Harvard. So I'm wondering if I'd gone to Amherst or Williams, for example, whether or not I would have had that same type of relationship. Listening to Henry Kissinger, that pompous ass, a lecture at us and when i went up to him to ask him a question he basically looked at me and said you're stupid i'm smart you know because <laughs> it's, it's a dumb question that did not give me a good feeling i will put it that way yeah yeah, yeah. No, you're right about that uh -huh. um, i went to a prep school where did you go gunnery gunnery okay. in washington connecticut i got my education at gunnery harvard seemed to check and see if i had it but i didn't feel like they improved me in mm -hmm. any way. Me too. I feel the same way. I think when you have a good good uh, uh, high school education, I, I think maybe that's the way you feel because you yeah. learned so much then, you know? I learned a lot more at Omaha Central High School than I, that stuck with me anyway than I did at Harvard. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's yeah. when you really learn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but see, I felt, that all, I felt that all of the prep school guys had a real advantage. I mean, they had essentially had all the courses that we had that first year already in prep school, and, and they, they, they knew how to think. I mean, I've come up out of a boys' high, which is a school in Brooklyn, and I basically got in there because of memory and, and sort of, you know, you read the book and uh, you take some notes and then you regurgitate it 
back on the, on the test. And I didn't really start to think and learn, in my view, until I got to Harvard. You know, so it was a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And, I, and mm -hmm. I felt it took a long time for the public, public school guys to kind of catch up with the prep school guys. Uh, and that's interesting because I was always told that uh, for the prep school guys, we kind of coasted that first year, but by sophomore year, we were pretty equal at that point in time. Right. I think you caught up within a year, but you're right. We, we came in with a better background than a lot of the high school kids. No question about that. Um, Eliza, I think, um, made that point too, that the, you have to sort of learn the ropes, learn the, the way of addressing things, the vocabulary. So it's not only that you, you hadn't thought, maybe you just hadn't thought in that way. Right. And right. with that um, methodology. And I think that's what the, that's where you have to sort of, sort of accommodate and adapt. How do you feel about that, George? You came out of a public school, right? I did, Kent. And more than that, I came out, out of an all black high school in a little town in Northeastern Oklahoma. So it oh, took me. I would say that it took me two years to learn how to negotiate Harvard. That said, I would go back there in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. I, 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 as you said, Kent, I really learned how to think at Harvard. And I had the same kind of experience in, in some senses as Eliza did. I can remember in HUM too. And again, I'm, 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 I'm gonna, going to just fabricate an example, but the, the instructor would say, well, what do you think Shakespeare meant when he wrote this? And my response was, why should anybody care? <laughs> and so, you know, it took me a, 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 I first of all had to learn how to care. Yeah, yeah that's a yeah. yeah. understand <laughs> how to interpret, in, in fact, what, what an author was, was saying, in particular in, in a particular novel or play or whatever. And it, and it took me at least a couple of years to do that. Is there anyone who who knew what they wanted to do when they got there? Graduate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know either, really. I, mean, I, I knew I wanted to go to law school. So. I'm not sure I know now. <laughs> it's too late. Well, listen, let me ask now. I mean, where do you guys think we are? Folks think we are politically now. Who's going to win this? Let's get into this uh, political situation. George, what do you think? Well, I could be wrong about this, Kent, but I don't, and anyone please jump in and correct me if you think I am. I don't think anybody's mind is going to be changed in the next six to eight weeks. I think pretty much everybody knows who they're going to vote for. And so I think that the key to this election is turnout. Turnout. That's what I think. Turnout. Big turnout. Yeah. Trump's gone. Yeah. Big turnout. The Democrats, uh, Biden gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Trump knows too. And he's trying to cut, cut down on the turnout. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what, I mean, where I live up here in, uh, in Delaware County, upstate New York, it's pretty much, the town is kind of a liberal town, or it used to be, but, but it's kind of red, redneck country in a way. <laughs> and there is a sense of uh, sort of Trump fatigue in the sense that everybody's tired of waking up every morning and you go to your phone and, and there's another thing, another thing. Another thing. Mm. I, I think there's a significant number of people who aren't going to vote for him because they're just tired of the chaos. And uh, I think you may be right. That's what the sense is when I talk to people around here mm. who are really Trump people or Republicans anyway. They just they just need some rest from uh, mm. 
you know. And you know, I, not vote, not voting is just as good as true. voting for God. <laughs> true, true, yeah. So if yeah. they just stay home from fatigue, that would be fine. What do you think, Marcy? What's your thinking on this? I'm just terrified. Oh. <laughs> I'm terrified about lots of things, but especially about um, uh, the coup that I fear is coming. Mm. By by Trump, by by the forces of uh, the right. Yeah. yeah. Marcy, when you say that, one of the things that gave me some solace was when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, the military will not get involved in the election, period. They will stay on the sidelines. So I don't think Trump can count on them to keep him in office. He can't no. Secret Service because they hate him. He's not going to count on the D.C. police because they hate him. So I don't think he's going to have that. Yes, he's got local militia, if you like, the right-wing nuts. Uh, but I don't think that's going to work, quite frankly. So I'm not terrified about that. Well, Cindy, what are they saying about us in Italy? People here are, are kind of horrified, the way we are, that this man became president of the United States. And then he may continue to be president of the United States there. You know, and they always ask me about it. How did it happen? Well, how would I know? I've been here for, in Italy for 50 years. But it did. How does it ever happen? How did Hitler happen? You know, it's really instructing yeah. us that these things happen. And, and people like us just sit around and, and watch it. I mean, do you guys feel that you have done enough in terms of your life and career or at this point? To, to, I mean, do you feel you're doing enough? Uh, Marcy's still in, in, in glorious battle. Yeah. Yeah, Marcy's still fighting it. Yeah, right. She's still is in the struggle, sort of. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing is we're all old. I mean, that's, that's a fact. It's easier, I think, to be a resistance fighter in your 20s when you have a life ahead of you and lots of energy and strength um, than when you get tired. I'm not tired in my brain but I'm tired in my body. <laughs> Indeed, as Marcy says, our bodies might be getting tired, but our brains are still raring to go. And that's it for episode eight of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. You can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.